friends, let us now listen to Brother Mel Caparos, pastor of Living Word Christian Churches of Cebu International. in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, we need to understand that the empty tomb is just as important as the cross itself. In fact, without the empty tomb, whatever was done at the cross would have been nullified. But we thank Jesus that on the third day, He rose again, and because He rose again, we shall rise one day. Amen? Let's give the Lord a big hand, please. I'm going to ask you to please rise from your seats as we continue with our series. And uh, what I would like to be able to do is, even as we continue with the series, I'd like to be able to connect it with the resurrection. But anyway, first of all, let's read James chapter 4 and verses 1 to 6 at this time. And at the count of three, I'd like everybody to please read aloud together with me. One, two, three. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source or pleasures that wage war in your members. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. But He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, today, we celebrate your resurrection. We celebrate the cross, but we also celebrate the empty tomb. Because without the empty tomb, then our faith is in vain. We really have no hope. But because of the empty tomb, and because we know that you have ascended on high, and that you are seated at the right hand of the Father, we now have genuine hope. Because as you rose back from the dead, so we too shall be resurrected with glorified bodies. And for that, we thank you, O God. We are forever indebted to you. And this morning, we come once again, Lord, with a desire to worship, with a desire to celebrate your resurrection, a desire to celebrate your power that works within us. And we pray, Lord, that you might honor and glorify your name. This is your day, O God. This was the day when you rose from the grave. And we pray, O Lord, that the Spirit of God will come upon us in a very special way. Allow us to encounter you. Allow us, Lord, to experience your touch and to feel your love, O God. And whatever is going to be achieved today, we will give you back the glory, the praises, and the thanks. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen and amen. Let's be seated in the presence of the Lord. 
Now, we began a short series last uh, Sunday, which we entitled Worldliness and War. And if you recall, I mentioned to you that very few people actually see the connection between war and worldliness, because oftentimes we think that they are separate issues and that they need to be dealt with separately. However, in the book of James, particularly in this particular passage, you and I see that there is actually a connection between war and worldliness. In fact, I would like to be able to say that human conflicts are actually a byproduct of our own worldly pleasures, our own worldly passions. And basically, at the root of that, of course, is a desire to become autonomous from God, a desire to be independent from God. And the basic goal of mankind and the basic goal of our own sinful nature is to make ourselves happy. We think that the whole world revolves around us and that the whole world is indebted to actually make us happy. In fact, we think that because God created us, He is duty-bound to make us happy. Unfortunately, this is the kind of mindset we find in the whole world. And sadly, even as we search every nook and cranny of this world, even as we taste bits and pieces of the world, we do not actually find happiness. Because again, we need to understand God did not wire us to find happiness in this world. He wired us to find happiness in Himself. That is why autonomy and independence from God produces a great tragedy. It makes us even more miserable. One of the things that you will discover with people who are in mental hospitals is that they have one common denominator. And this is what psychologists and psychiatrists will tell you, that there is too much preoccupation on self. And there is a big problem when we are very much preoccupied with ourselves because, again, we raise the standards of our expectations. And as I mentioned to you, we begin to think that the world owes us happiness. But then again, we will discover that we cannot get all of the things that we desire. Every ambition will not be fulfilled. Every dream that we have will not be fulfilled. And I believe that God has actually placed us in a situation whereby you and I will discover that true and lasting happiness can only be found in God. That's why, friends, when we go the way of worldly passions, we are actually setting ourselves up for greater tragedy frustration, and even depression. But more than that, when you and I have worldly passions, we are actually setting ourselves up at war against God Himself. And friends, you do not want to be at war with God. You cannot pick Him as your enemy. Sadly, when we allow ourselves to become immersed and inundated by all this selfishness, we make God our enemy. And this is act 
actually what you and I will be discussing and putting our focus on this particular morning. But let me just review to you what we had studied last week just so we don't lose our train of thought. So we talked about three points and we already finished up with these first two points, but let me just review them to you. We were saying that worldly passions equals war with men. It will produce conflict with men. And what happens there is when we lust and do not have, in a worst-case scenario, we can actually even commit murder. And we saw two examples last time around. We saw the example of Cain and Abel. What happened there? We saw that the offering of Abel was accepted by the Lord, but the offering of Cain was rejected. Now, what did Cain do? Cain obviously wanted the approval of God, but because he did not receive approval, he wanted to eliminate the competition. So what did he do? He killed his own brother, thinking that maybe right now, the eyes of God, the favor of God would be trained upon him. But sadly, that is not what happened. God rejected him even more. We also saw the example of Judas, who was frustrated because he wanted power. He thought Jesus was a political Messiah. And because that did not happen, in anger, he betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ with 30 pieces of silver. And not only that, he handed him over to the chief priest, and we know what happened. The Lord Jesus Christ was crucified. So that's what happens when we lust for things. Now, when we speak about lust, remember this, we're not just talking about sexual lust here. In fact, I think what James was focusing on was a lust for power, a lust for popularity, a lust for fame, a lust for success. And what happens is when you and I lust for these things and we do not have them and we see other people receiving those things, we get angry. Maybe we get angry with God and we get angry with people. That's why I always say, if you pay attention long enough, if you listen well enough to every angry word and complaint and grumbling that you hear, you will notice some lust there. A lust for power, a lust for prestige, a lust for fame, a lust for attention. And friends, once again, we will not be able to fulfill our deepest needs when all we think about is ourselves. And the second one is related to that. When we envy and do not have, we fight and quarrel. Now, I defined to you what envy is last time around. What is envy? Envy is actually resenting the blessings of other people. It is resenting the blessings of other people. The Bible, in fact, calls us to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice. So when people are blessed, we should be happy. When people are receiving the favor of God or receiving a promotion, we should be happy for them, genuinely happy. Because that is who our God is. Our God desires us to be blessed. And therefore, if God is the one who is blessing other people, shouldn't we be happy that God is doing that for them? 
And at the same time, let's think about this. God has in store blessings for us. And the blessings that we receive may be different from the blessings of other people. And yet, the blessings that God gives to us is a sign of the love of God. It is a sign of the grace of God. But we are never ever to compare ourselves with other people. There is where the tragedy lies when we begin comparing ourselves with other people. It's all about our covenant relationship with God. And so we are to count our blessings. And we are not to, to count the blessings of other people and be envious of those blessings that other people have. No, let's count our own blessings. Because that will produce in our hearts a celebration. That will produce in our hearts worship. And we will begin to glorify and honor God that He is so good to us that though we are undeserving sinners, He still grants favor and goodness upon our lives. So friends, do not envy. And again, that's the reason why there's a lot of fighting and quarreling. So if you observe some conflict, you need to be able to find out what is at the root of this conflict. And more often than not, here's what we discover. There's envy somewhere. Somebody is envying somebody. All right? So we went to the second point last time around. We talked about worldly motives. Again, God reads into our hearts. It's not just our actions that God reads into. He reads into our hearts. He knows every thought. He knows every intention. He knows the motives of our hearts. And therefore, we are not to have worldly motives. We talked about the general principle in prayer, and we probably think, why is, it, why is this intruding sentence included here? Well, why is prayer included there? For one simple reason. Sometimes we do not have, and other people have, because we did not pray, and they were praying. They have prayed for certain things, and God in His goodness and in His graciousness has granted them things in answer to prayer. And sometimes we're envying and lusting for things, but when we really think about it, sometimes we didn't even pray about it. In prayer, by the way, we also determine what is the will of God for us. And when we know what the will of God is for us, therefore, we can now pray correctly. And we are assured of this thing, that when we pray according to the will of God, He will answer all of our prayers. But we need to make sure, however, that when we pray, it's not coming from worldly motives, a desire to squander on whatever God gives to us. And once again, we find the story of the prodigal son, if you recall that story, what did he do? Well, he wanted his inheritance. And when he received his inheritance, he started to spend it all, thinking that he would have happiness, that he would have joy. Now, what was the result? Well, the result was he found himself eating pig's food. He ate swine food. That's what happened to him. And then he realized how foolish he had been, and he came to his senses, and so he goes back to his father. And his father, by the way, runs towards him, 
And you know, in that culture, the patriarch never does that. That is an embarrassing thing to, to raise the hem of your garments and start running towards your son, most especially a son who has offended you. But that's what he did because he was a gracious and loving father. And he was there to run towards his son and embrace him. And that is who our God is, by the way. And so, friends, let's learn a lesson from the prodigal son. Let's not squander these things on ourselves, but rather let's focus and fix our eyes on the Lord. Listen well. It is only when we fix our eyes on the Lord. It is only when we determine that in Him is true happiness that we will truly find joy and happiness in our lives. And I'll explain more of that in a bit. But we now go to the third point, and this right now is what you and I will be talking about. Worldliness equals war with God. As I mentioned to you, you don't want to pick God as your enemy. The book of Hebrews says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. What chances do you and I have against God? Satan and all his cohorts do not have a chance against God, not even a minute one. And here's what we need to understand, verse 4, that it is an evil thing to be at friendship with the world. What we need to exercise, however, as found in verse 5, is friendship with the Holy Spirit. We've been given the Holy Spirit ever since we accepted Christ as Lord and Savior. And by the way, in that point, I'm going to talk to you about the resurrection power. Because the truth of the matter is the resurrection should not be an isolated event of victory which only belongs to the past. The resurrection has continuing victories up to today and even all the way into the future. We'll talk about that as well. I will also see here that friendship with the world equals pride. And friendship with the, with the Spirit, rather, equals humility. So let's now go to the third point because this is where uh, we left off certain things. So worldliness equals war with God. Shall we read together verses 4 to 6, please? From the NASB, it reads, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. But He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Again, before James talked about spiritual adultery, what did he talk about? He was talking about squandering all the things that we have on worldly pleasures. And basically, he defines that as spiritual adultery. That's why notice here, he calls the brethren adulteresses. Again, let me remind you, James was not talking to people in the world he was not talking to the uninitiated. He was talking to believers. They were his brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ. And yet, they were committing spiritual adultery. And yet, they were very worldly in their hearts. 
And what I recall here actually was what happened to Israel. Remember, they were slaves in Egypt and they cried out to God for a deliverer and God gave them Moses. God took them out of Egypt and they were headed all the way to the land of promise, the land flowing with milk and honey. But along the way, and you're talking about a million people, more than a million people being led by Moses, they started to grumble and they started to complain. And they were complaining about lack of water. They were complaining about the fact that they did not have meat. They were complaining probably about the heat and so many other things. And sadly, they were telling Moses it was much better in Egypt. In fact, they were tempted to go back all the way to the place of slavery. They were tempted to go back to Egypt. You know what happened to them was that they were removed physically from Egypt, but Egypt remained in their hearts. And we find here the same problem with the Christians, with the believers. They were delivered by God from the kingdom of darkness. They were delivered by God from the world. And yet, they still love the world. They still love themselves over and above God and that of brethren. They love themselves and not, you know, not God and not their neighbors. And you know, when that happens, that's considered spiritual adultery. And you ask, why? Because God is our husband. Do you know that the church is also called the bride of Jesus Christ? It's called the bride of Christ. Therefore, who is our groom? Our groom, of course, is the Lord Jesus. And therefore, because we're married to Christ, we should be faithful to Him. We should be devoted to Him. Jesus should have no rivals whatsoever. Let me ask you this question. How many here are married? Please raise your hands. All right. A lot of us are married here. I think maybe around 40, 50 percent are already married. Let me ask you a very um, important question. How many of you would like your spouse to commit adultery? Raise your hands. You've got to be crazy to raise your hands. Obviously, we never want that to happen in our lives. If there's going to be a nightmare that's going to take place in our lives, it is when our spouse leaves us for another person, for another man, or for, not, for another woman. Because we made vows before God. And what were those vows that we made before God? That we would remain together for better or for worse, in riches or in poverty, in sickness or in health, till death do us part. And we made that vow not only before the sponsors, we made that vow before God Himself. And so you could just imagine the pain and the hurt of the betrayal of somebody who goes astray and finds somebody else. We never want that happening in our case. Because when we got married, we made that decision that we would be loyal to each other. And friends, understand this. When you accepted Christ as Lord and Savior of your life, you agreed to get married to Him. You did not just accept Him as the Savior of your life. You accepted Him as the Lord of your life. And being Lord of your life, what that means is that 
He controls your life. He reigns in your life. He is supreme in your life. He is preeminent in your life. And friends, that allegiance can be broken when you and I begin to have worldly passions in our hearts. When we begin to love the world and not God Himself. Some believers think that we can put one foot in the world and another foot in the Lord. That should never happen. And that cannot happen in a Christian's life. If we do that, we are betraying our Lord, Savior, and our Master. You see, spiritual adultery is the kind of thing that will weigh us down and bring spiritual paralysis. I recall the story, and this might be a legend or a myth, but anyway, the story is actually illustrative of what worldliness can do to our spiritual lives. You and I know that there's a very big difference between wild ducks and domesticated ducks. Wild ducks are able to fly for, for several miles. They're able to migrate into different places. Domesticated ducks, however, can fly a little bit, but they cannot fly long distances. And oftentimes, you will find them in a farm. So there's this story of wild ducks, a platoon of wild ducks that were heading northward. And as they were heading northward, there was this wild duck that saw some domesticated ducks who were in the farm. And they were eating a lot of corn. And so this wild duck became tempted that he decided that he would go down and join the domesticated ducks and enjoy the corn that they were eating as well. So he ate of them, and when he had his fill, he flew back again. But then he thought about it, and so he flies back again. And this time, he stays a little bit longer. Eats all the corn that were fed to them, and he stays on, and he gains a lot of weight. He becomes fat. And so when, when the wild ducks return home right now, they went northward. Now they were going southward. And so when this wild duck saw his friends flying and heading south, he wanted to join them. So what he did was, was he tried to flap his wings really hard, but he was, he was obese. He had gained so much weight. And so it did not work for him. So he decided, well, he might as well just stay and eat more of the corn. Later on, however, he finds them flying again north, migrating again north. And this time, he just looks up and looks back down. He knew it was useless. And friends, sometimes that's what happens to us. We're tempted by the gravy. We're tempted by the icing of the cake of this world, and we think that it will satisfy us. We think that it will make us happy. But when we take on the gravy, and when we partake of the icing of the cake, we realize that it's all about emptiness. Friends, that is the, what the world gives to us. I've shared to you my testimony a little bit, and I think there are some people here who may not have heard my testimony, but allow me to share what I mean here by sharing my little story. When I graduated from college, I easily got a job 
I got a job from one of the type, top five advertising companies in Makati, and I became an account executive. And I was serving some very popular brands at that time. We were the ones who actually introduced Pizza Hut to our country. It, it had not yet come to our country, and we were the ones that introduced Pizza Hut to our country. And then I was handling um, Euroclean or Electrolux uh, products. Some of you may still recall the tune that we, uh, we used uh, for that commercial. I'm gonna knock on your door, ring on your bell, tap on your window too. So some of you who are old, you probably remember that. The younger generation, you only know about, you know, other commercials. But that was my commercial at that time. It was very popular, by the way. And we handled that. I handled Binibining Pilipinas. I handled a very high-profile liquor. I don't want to mention it. I'm embarrassed that I was promoting that. And many other things. I was promoting Araneta Group of Companies. I was promoting Skate Town, Chaturia, and many other things. And for a while, it was satisfying. For a while, I was happy. For, I, for a while, I was basking in the glory. For a while, I think this was a career that I really wanted. But then later on, as time went on, I just realized how empty it was. I was working day and night, and it was just one monotonous, dull cycle. Friday comes, and Friday was something that I was looking forward to because I could party with my friends, I could go to the disco, I could go drinking, I could do some crazy things, I could take drugs and all of that. All of that I did during the weekend. I tasted every bit and piece of what the world could offer. I was smoking two to three packs of cigarettes a day. I was into drugs, not heavy drugs, but I was into it. I was into alcohol, but Monday would come, and when Monday would come, I would experience what is called as Monday blues. I had to drag my feet back once again to my office, and I had to deal with all my demanding clients once again, and I had to meet deadlines and all of that, and I had to smoke a lot of cigarettes again, and I had to do overtime once again. I just realized if this is what life is all about, then it's really dull and boring. I just found out for myself at that young age, it was not bringing me anywhere. It was not bringing satisfaction to my soul. And then I saw my brother, my brother who used to be a very violent person. And I saw him starting to read up on the scriptures. And I saw something that he had that I did not have. He had genuine joy. It was genuine. You know if something is genuine and not fake. And his was genuine joy. I could see it in his countenance. I, I could see it in the glow of his face. And I began to envy him. And I began to say to myself, look at my brother. I mean, I'm partying every weekend. I'm drinking every weekend. And yet, it's not bringing me anywhere. And here's my brother. He's just reading the Bible, and he has so much joy. And that set me off on a journey. And you know what happened? God found me. And I thank God because ever since that time, I have tasted and I have seen that the Lord, He is good.
Amen. He is good. And this is exactly what, what the Bible teaches us. A lot of times we think of God as an impersonal God. But if you take a look at the scriptures, we find a very personal God, a God who could be touched, maybe not literally, but a God who could be felt, a God who was there. Every time we go to the Bible, what we see, even beginning from the Old Testament, what do we see? The presence of God. We see the cloud of glory and the pillar of fire. We see uh, times wherein the glory of God was so powerful in the temple or in the sanctuary or in the tabernacle such that they could not enter the tabernacle because the glory of God was so powerful. That's why we hear uh, the psalmist saying, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. We hear the psalmist saying that, that in the presence of God is fullness of joy. He talks about a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. He talks about being a gatekeeper in the house of the Lord. He, he chooses to be a gatekeeper in the house of the Lord. In all of that, what was he talking about? What were these believers talking about? They were talking about the presence of God. They were talking about a very personal God, a God who could be touched, a God who was there. That's why we find in the New Testament, one of the titles of Jesus Christ is He is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then the Lord Jesus Christ promised to us that if we obey His commandments, if we abide in Him, He will manifest Himself to us. Now what exactly does the word manifest mean? Now, Judas, by the way, used the same Greek word when he was speaking to Jesus Christ. And he said this, Why is it that you manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Now, obviously, Judas was talking about the physical manifestation and the physical revelation of Jesus Christ to them. And yet, Jesus was not revealing Himself in the same way that He was revealing Himself to the disciples. And so, when you and I connect that with what Jesus said about keeping His commandments and Him manifesting Himself to us, what that means is a kind of manifestation wherein we do encounter God in a very real way. We do experience God in a very real way. Only believers can understand this statement. When somebody says, you know what? When I came into the sanctuary, the presence of God was thick. And people in the world will hear that and they will scratch their heads. What exactly does this person mean that the presence of God was thick? But for those of us who have met the Lord Jesus Christ, for those of us who have encountered Christ, we know exactly what that means. Because God does manifest Himself to His people. Amen? I recall the time when I was praying to God and I was spiritually dry. And I cried out to God, Lord, make me feel Your love. I was like a child praying in faith. I was just like a little baby boy asking his father for some candy. My faith was weak at that time. 
I, my strength was failing at that time, and yet God in His graciousness answered that prayer. That very night, I felt waves, and I don't know how to describe it, but I'll describe it this way. I felt waves of love pounding my chest. And it was just like it was going to be a perpetual pounding of my chest. I felt the power of God exploding in my chest. And I felt that any time I could die in the presence of God, that was, ho- that was how powerful the presence of God was. That was how powerful the pounding was. And I recall exactly what, what the Lord said when Moses said to God, show me your glory. God said, I can only show you my back parts. Because if I show you my full glory, you will die. Friends, our, our human bodies cannot take in the full glory of God. What with our sinful nature, it will never ever be able to contain the glory of God. God has to withhold something. And I felt at that very moment, I was going to die. And I cried out to God, Lord, stay your hand, stay your hand, Lord, lest I die. But that very moment... I saw, or rather I felt, the manifest love of God in my heart. That's why if people tell me, you know what, miracles are not for today, I can never believe that. I can never believe statements like, you know, God was performing miracles during the time of the apostles and during the time of the prophets, but now in the New Testament church, He doesn't perform miracles any longer. I can't believe that. First of all, if I examine the Scriptures, I do not find anything that says to me that the miracles have stopped. I do not find any validation from Scripture that the Bible, in fact, states that miracles are not for today. Friends, the Bible tells us that miracles are still for today. In fact, they will still be happening in the future. And my point simply is this. A lot of people settle for less instead of settling for the best. Many people are holding on to this old ragged doll because it's the only thing that, that they can put their hands on. Not realizing that there are far greater things, far better things in store for them. That's why it was a tragedy what was actually happening at this time in the case of the believers because what had happened was they were now beginning to commit spiritual adultery. They were betraying the Lord. They were betraying their devotion to the Lord. And friends, let me tell you this. Don't ever, ever betray the Lord. It's going to weigh you down. Um, One author of daily bread. You're probably familiar with daily bread. He related the story of uh, one severe snowstorm that took place in Michigan. And he said that in his backyard, he had two birches. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with birches, they're actually slender trees that grow quite high. In fact, one of the birches in his backyard was 35 feet high. That was how high that birch tree was. But when this severe snowstorm had taken place, 
one of the trees actually lost some of its branches, but it was still standing erect. It was able to, to withstand the very severe snowstorm. However, the other tree, the 35-foot tree, did not survive. When the storm came, it fell down, it toppled down, being totally uprooted. And the question is, what happened? Why was one tree able to stand and the other one was unable to stand? Well, for one simple reason, the other tree that fell down was growing at an angle. And so when all the snow was falling on it, the pull of gravity was too much that it literally fell down to the ground. And basically, that's a very beautiful picture of what happens to us sometimes. We're weighed down by our worldly affections. We're weighed down by our worldly passions. And friends, today is a good day to remember what the Lord has done for us. Today is a good day to allow the resurrection power of Jesus Christ to empower us to overcome whatever trials and temptations are in our lives. And so again, friends, we must not befriend the world because befriending the world means enmity with God. Let's read once again another portion of verse 4. It says this, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Worldliness will not only cause you to be at war with men. Worse than that, it will cause you to be at war with God. Friendship with the world is actually declaring war with God. And the sad thing many times is that we focus on the wrong things and on the wrong persons in our lives. And we think that we will derive satisfaction from these things. But you know, what we are doing actually is we are destroying this intimate, wonderful relationship that we have with God. You and I are probably familiar with what happened in World War II. And of course, during World War II, the men, the young men, and the able men were sent into the battlefield. And of course, the women were left behind. Well, that's exactly what happened in Germany. In one particular town, all the men, all the able young men went into war. And so what were left were the women. They became the fire women brigade because there were no firemen. So there were fire women. And so what happened was there was this uh, garment store which were filled with a lot of beautiful clothes and beautiful hats. And so finally the siren, you know, sounded because there was fire in this garment store. And, and the chief, the fire chief said that they needed to pour water on the building so that it would not burn. However, the fire women saw the beautiful clothes and the hats, and they thought, before we throw water on this building, let's take out all these beautiful clothes and hats. And that's exactly what they did. They, they took out all the beautiful clothes. I don't know if they 
tried to fit it or whatever, but they took it out, took the hats, and, and finally they said, Let, let's pour water on, on, this, uh, on this store. By that time, the building had burned down already. But they had saved the clothes. Sometimes we burn the building of our relationship with God because we have worldly priorities. Because we're not thinking of God at all, but we're thinking of our own ambitions. We're thinking of our own pleasures. We're thinking of our own satisfaction. We're thinking of our own happiness. And what we do not know, friends, is that it is destroying our relationship with God. Researchers for the World Almanac and Book of Facts asked 2,000 American 8th grade students to name prominent people they admired and wanted to be like. Those most frequently mentioned by the teens as their heroes were celebrities. Commenting on this, columnist Sidney J. Harris lamented the fact that every one of the 30 prominent personalities who were named was either an entertainer, movie actor, movie actress, singer, or an athlete. He noted that statesmen, authors, painters, musicians, architects, doctors, and astronauts failed to capture the imagination of these students. He, he further suggested that the heroes and heroines created by our society are people who have made it big in the entertainment world and have made it big in the sporting world. But not necessarily people who have done big and nobler things. And sometimes what is true of this particular survey is also true of us. We tend to admire not only the icons of this world, but we refuse to acknowledge the greatest hero this world has ever known, the risen Christ. Amen. He alone deserves the glory, the honor, the power, and the praises. But sometimes we refuse to see that. That's why, friends, instead of befriending the world, we need to befriend the Holy Spirit. And we see this in verse 5, friendship with the Spirit. Verse 5 reads, Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in, in us. So instead of friendship with the world, we should seek friendship with the Holy Spirit. Now, one of the things that maybe some Christians are not familiar with is that ever since we accepted Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. That's what Ephesians chapter 1 says. This was exactly what the Lord Jesus promised, that the Holy Spirit will come, live, and dwell in us forever. And so one of the benefits of the resurrection, brothers and sisters, is the fact that we now have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And it is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that empowers us 
to be able to overcome our worldly passions. It is the Holy Spirit that causes us to overcome whatever trials and temptations come our way. That's why the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not an isolated, powerful, historical event in the past. That event has continuing positive and powerful effects up to today and even up to tomorrow. Why? Because of the resurrection, we now have the power of the Holy Spirit. We now have the resurrection power of God within us. That's why if you are a believer in Christ, you're supposed to be an overcomer. For the Bible says, for whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. And the Bible says in the book of Romans, we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who loved us. But sometimes we do not avail of that power within us. That resurrection power is inside of us. This is the reason why in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul was praying that the eyes of the Ephesian believers would be enlightened. That they would understand the strength and the power that was within them which is the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. That's why, friends, here's the thing. If you're struggling with something in your life, you can overcome it. But the question is, are you allowing the Holy Spirit? Are you yielding yourself to the Holy Spirit? Because only in yielding to the Holy Spirit will you gain victory. Sadly, many people are on the wayside of things for the simple reason that they think that they cannot change. I was sharing the story uh, in the congregational prayer and fasting of somebody who was an elder of the church, and yet he was watching pornography every now and then. And finally, he got bothered that he got to talk with a Christian friend, and he said, you know what? I just want to confess to you, I'm, I'm watching pornography. I'm not addicted to it, by the way. I can go several months with no pornography at all. But I find myself going back and, and watching pornography every now and then. And he tried to justify himself that his relationship with his wife was all right. It was not really destroying his, his marriage and so he, he felt that it was all right, it was fine, it was some form of recreation. Anyway, he was not harming anybody, he was not harming his wife, he thought. And so he thought, it's just fine. And yet, he finally said, but you know what, even though I think it's fine, I feel dirty. I feel unclean. And his friend spoke to him and said, is it possible that it is the Holy Spirit that is convicting you of your sin and that you need to give it up. And we would like to think that the story ended in a happy note, that this man finally repented of his pornography, but he did not. He continued on. And what is the reason why he continued on? Because he was probably thinking, well, I'm really like this. I've always been like this. I can't help myself. But there lies the problem. We're relying on ourselves. We're relying on our power. 
We have not opened our eyes to the fact that the Holy Spirit is present, that He lives and dwells inside of us, and that we do not actually have any excuse whatsoever for failure and continual stumbling because the resurrection power of Jesus Christ is able to deliver us from all our temptations. The problem, however, is our failure to rely on the Holy Spirit. Friends, let me just tell you this. Victory can only be availed upon if we rely on the Holy Spirit. My brother shared a little story which I was so blessed to hear. The story of Ben-Hur. And I'm not talking about the movie of Ben-Hur right now because that's, that's a very new one. I'm talking about the old movie when uh, Charlton Heston was the actor. I just want to find out how many here uh, have seen Ben-Hur, uh, Charlton Heston. Raise your hands really high. All right. You're just as old as I am or maybe older. All right. But there's this, there's this beautiful story. Charlton Heston went on a training. Because remember, the story of Ben-Hur was he was riding chariots. He was racing chariots. And so in this story, um, well, what happened was he went through training, strenuous training, so that he could learn how to race uh, riding a chariot. And in his training, he was quite frustrated because there were others who were more skilled than he was. And he was thinking, well, what's going to happen? I, I might not win. I mean, all these guys are skilled and I'm a newbie. I'm, I'm a rookie. I, I don't really know how to, to ride the chariot. So maybe I won't, I won't win. So he began to talk to his director and he said to the director, director, you know, I, I'm really worried about this because the other guys are so skilled, and I'm, I'm barely staying on the chariot. How can, I, how can I possibly win? And what the director said was, was very powerful, and I'd like you to catch it. This is what the director said. Your job, Charlton, is to stay on the chariot. My job is to make you win. Are you following? Char Charlton, your job is to stay on the chariot. My job is to make you win. And friends, what God is asking us is to simply stay on our chariots. He will make sure we will win. Amen. He will make sure that we will win. So again, that comes with yielding ourselves with the Holy Spirit. What happens when we yield ourselves with the Holy Spirit? We will be content with our lives, and we will be at peace with God, and we will be at peace with men. God desires that we listen, submit, or yield to the Holy Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. If we do not yield ourselves and yield ourselves instead to the world, we make God extremely jealous. 
And why not? We are married to Christ and married to the Holy Spirit. Notice what it says here in verse 5. Let's read it again. It says, Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. Listen well, brothers and sisters. Our God is a jealous God. He is jealous for the Holy Spirit in us. The Holy Spirit was not given to us that we might disrespect and dishonor the Holy Spirit. We need to understand the Holy Spirit is the third person in the blessed Trinity and we give him we need to give to him the due respect. He is there, brothers and sisters, so that we might grow in our sanctification. He is there that we might become Christ-like. He is there that we might yield ourselves to Him. Sadly, again, we do not nurture this friendship with the Holy Spirit. But it is there, my dear friends. Communion, sweetness, intimacy, fellowship. All of these things come when we befriend the Holy Spirit. And in ending, here's what James says. And this is what he concludes. Friendship with the world equals pride. And friendship with the Spirit equals humility. Notice what verse 6 reads. It says, but He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. What is this saying? God is opposed to the worldly-minded and considers this as defiance or defiant pride. And why is that so? Why is it, why is it being proud when you have these worldly passions? Because you are in effect saying that God does not satisfy you are in effect saying that God does not complete you. You are in fact saying that God does not fill you. And you are in fact saying that God is a liar, that He does not fulfill His promises. That's why we're turning to the world. That's why we're turning to worldly passions. Because we think and we believe that these worldly passions, our envy, our lust, our covetousness, these are the things that will ultimately satisfy us. But friends, we are greatly mistaken. And that is defiance against God. That is pride. And the Bible says that He is opposed to the proud. The word opposed, by the way, in the Greek is the Greek word antitasomai, which is a military term meaning to battle against. God will battle against us when we allow worldly passions to rule our lives. How many of you are familiar with the story of Pompeii, the destruction of Pompeii? Raise your hands. All right, we have some students of history here. Let me share to you what happened according to the record of one historian. Of course, we know that Pompeii had this volcanic eruption. Lava was beginning to flow down. One historian writes, many of the people, chiefly the wealthy, refused to abandon their homes and precious possessions, hoping that the horrible calamity of lava reaching them, hot lava reaching them, would not 
reach them. The decision actually cost them their lives. Steadily, the hot tide of rock and ashes rose against the doors and windows, burying the victims as they huddled in courtyards and cellars. Poisonous volcanic gases seeped in and killed others who had taken refuge in the upper stories of their homes. Eventually, the molten mass of liquid fire crept above the highest rooftops, and Pompeii was totally destroyed. That's a very powerful story of how you and I are destroyed by our worldly passions and worldly pleasures. In contrast, those whose hearts are not worldly, God gives grace which may even include material grace. You know, friends, the wonderful thing about our God is when we humble ourselves before Him, when we have a broken and contrite spirit, here's what the book of Isaiah says, He dwells with those who have broken and contrite spirits. That is why if you look at believers who have walked with God, you find a certain serenity with them, a certain solemnity in their lives, a quiet confidence, a stillness that is enviable, a peace that is enviable, a joy that is unsurpassed. This is exactly what brought me to the Lord when I saw the life of my brother. This was what attracted me to Christ when I attended the church and I saw people beside me who were crying. They were crying not because of grief, not because they were depressed. They were crying because they were so in love with Christ. And they were, they were in awe of the fact that undeserving sinners as they were, God loved them. And I would see them kneeling down tears flowing down their cheeks, and they would sing their love songs to Christ. I saw genuineness. Friends, we cannot fake intimacy. We cannot fake communion. We cannot fake the sweet presence of God. This is something that you know is real and something that is genuine. And as I observed the people before me, as I saw them staring at heaven with their eyes closed, I could see the glow in their faces and I knew they were encountering God. I knew they were feeling God. I knew that they were encountering God at that time. I knew there was a manifestation of God. And I said to myself, I want that. I want the God that these people are worshiping. I want the resurrected Christ in my heart and in my life. And thankfully, when the preacher asked if there was anyone who would accept the Lord Jesus Christ, I stood from where I was, unashamed, unembarrassed. I wasn't looking at my neighbor's. I did not mind the others. I was, I was crying like a baby. My colds were coming out of my nose. I was just a picture of complete nakedness before the presence of God. My heart was so open to Him. And I was just receiving Him, all of Him. And I was just weeping like a baby. 
This is what the greater grace is all about. My friends, let me just tell you this as well. It's not just that. Do you think that God in His goodness will, will withhold something to you if He knew that your heart was right? Even material graces are there for us. You know, we just came from the prayer mountain and it brought back some memories of the many sacrifices that were made by a lot of people to be able to build the prayer mountain. It's a 1.7 hectare facility. Of course, we did not fill it up. But we have a dormitory there. We have a cafeteria there. We have a sanctuary there. It's really a nice place. We have a garden there. I recall the many sacrifices that people made in the prayer mountain. I recall people, you know, selling their jewelry and giving their lifetime savings. I recall one medrep who gave a lot to the prayer mountain, a lot of her savings. And the result of that was God blessed her back. She was so surprised, not only did she meet the quota, she was gifted by the company a brand new car. So what is that telling us? What that is telling us is that if we just simply humble ourselves before God, if we devote ourselves to Him, He will not withhold those blessings to us because He is not a stingy God. Amen? He is a generous, loving God. Amen? So instead of worldliness and the resulting war with men and with God, what we should be seeking is our Savior. Our Savior has paved the way. The empty tomb is there for us to see that our Christ is alive. But where did our Savior go? He did not linger long here on earth, but He is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And friends, let me just tell you this. That is where our final destiny is. And as you rose from the grave, you and I will rise from the grave. So let us fix our eyes on the Lord God, our Savior. Amen? He is risen and He is alive. Can we bow our heads and close our eyes at this time? As every head is bowed, every eye is closed, we will be celebrating the Lord's table. But not everybody can actually celebrate communion. It is exclusively a celebration only of those who have accepted Christ as Lord and Savior of their lives. And you ask why? For one simple reason. You cannot celebrate something you do not understand. You cannot gate crash, for example, in a birthday party wherein you are not invited. Because if you gate crash in a birthday party wherein you are not invited, you may not even know who's the celebrant. 
So the celebration of the Lord's table is pointless when you do not know your Savior. What has the Savior done? What the Savior has done is He has died and He has paid the penalty of your sins. All of it. Past, present, and future. You made no contribution to your salvation. All of it is the work of Christ. And the Lord's table actually teaches that. Because the bread there is a symbol of the body of Christ. It was your body, it was my body that was supposed to be nailed to the cross. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. But Jesus told us to step aside. It was His body instead that was nailed to the cross. The cup of wine symbolizes the blood of Jesus Christ. The Bible declares, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So if you think about it, the Lord's table is about what Christ has done. Let me ask you this question. Is there anything in this ordinance that talks about your contribution to salvation? Think about it. Is there anything about the Lord's Supper that talks about your contribution to your salvation? And obviously, you will say, well, nothing. The bread symbolizes the body of Christ. The wine symbolizes His blood. So I have no contribution. Only when you understand that you have no contribution to salvation and that only Christ saves your soul, can you celebrate, can you celebrate the Lord's table? And all you just need to do is believe and repent Believe what Christ has done for you. Your good works cannot save you. Only Christ's death on the cross. And the proof that He paid for your sins is He rose from the grave. That's the receipt. That's the proof. That's the evidence. So right now, before we distribute the elements, I'd like to find out, is there anybody here who hasn't accepted Christ as Lord and Savior. And the promise of Christ is that if you repent, if you ask God to change you, if you make Him the Lord and Savior of your life, if you believe that He died on the cross to pay the penalty of your sins, you will be saved. Your name will be written in the book of life. And if that is your desire, while every head is bowed, every eye is closed, those who want to accept Christ, those who want, him, want to make Him the Lord and Savior of their lives, could you please slip up your right hand to the Lord all over this place? Those who want to accept Christ, I just need to find out if I should be leading some people in prayer. Raise your right hand to the Lord. Those who want to accept Christ. Yes, I see a hand at the back, another hand at the back, another hand at the back. Amen. Anyone else? Those who want to receive Christ today, raise your hands. Yes, brother, I see your hand as well. Amen. Anyone else? Aside from these hands that have been raised up, yes, sister, I see your hand. 
Amen. Now you can put them down right now. And for those of you who want to accept Christ, pray this prayer, please, from your heart. Lord Jesus Christ, I ask for forgiveness for all my sins. Cleanse and wash me from all unrighteousness. I repent of all the things that I've done. And I know, Lord, on my own, I cannot change myself. But by the power of your Holy Spirit, by your resurrection power, I know that I could be changed. So I surrender my life to you. Make me the kind of person you want me to be. And I thank you for the free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, my Lord and my Savior. In your name I pray. Amen. If you prayed that prayer today or if you prayed it some other time, then obviously you can participate in the Lord's table. So please come and join us and let's commemorate what Christ has done, His death and His resurrection. Let's ask the worship team to please come and 